Welcome to the sixth episode of the Sandune podcast. I am your co-host Hans Kathkurt, and I am here with Frank Sigurnitsky. And you are welcome to tweet us at Sandune Podcast or email talk at sandune.org if you want to send us any show suggestions or any questions that you might have. So welcome. And uh, Frank, uh, how have you been? I've been pretty good. I started a new book. I know I mentioned a book last week that I've been reading. The book I'm reading now, which is called, I believe, The Dawn of Everything. It just came out. Its central thesis is that the philosophers Rousseau and Hobbes, who try to describe the state of ancient man as a way to describe inequality in modern man, um, may have been completely and totally wrong. And since these guys are kind of the basis of all Western philosophy and a lot of the views of history, it's semi, you know, heresy that somebody suggests that, you know, all of the basic assumptions are completely wrong. So I kind of love books like this that kind of go in and say, hey, all of your preconceptions are completely incorrect. And if you think about it real hard, you know they have to be wrong. So it's a really, really long book. Um, I've only been through about a quarter of it. So I'll let you know how it turns out. Sounds pretty mind-bending. Although I've always wondered what would happen if you took Julius Caesar and brought him into the 20th or the 21st century, what, uh, whether or not he would uh, end up running for president or something. You probably just want a cut of his casino. Indeed. So what have you been doing, Hans? Uh, well, let's see. I've been continuing my Swift training, and I've been reading uh, on Twitter and in various news articles, a lot more about cryptocurrencies and NFTs. I think it's about to jump the shark. Oh, I don't. I don't know if we want to go there, Hans. No, you don't. You don't yeah. want to go to crypto. <laughs> you know, to say you know, once you go crypto, you don't. And I'm not sure we're ready to attack that in this particular broadcast. However, I will say one thing. I read a very interesting on LinkedIn where somebody was begging everyone, please. When you mean crypto, don't say blockchain. And when you mean blockchain, don't say crypto. But we should we should do a whole show on that, right? Because it's you know that is a huge topic. But we should probably wait until there's uh, some market movement that makes everyone cry, and then people will want to pay attention. No, oh, I'm sure that'll happen by the end of the year. All right. Well, uh, looking forward to that. Uh, the other thing I, I've been just started a book also called Artificial Unintelligence by Meredith Broussard. And I have to say it's the clearest explanation I have ever read on how computer hardware, software, and AI works. So I'm only in like the first chapters of the book. So I will hand in my book report in a few weeks. Then the other book that I actually just finished was a little bit more along the, my interest in aviation. And this is called Fly by Wire by William Langeweiche. It's a book about the 2009 U.S. Airways Flight 1549 that uh, landed in front of your front door, I remember. Yeah, I actually worked at Lincoln Harbor, which was on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. I saw the plane floating down the river and you know, we saw the ferry boats pull up to it with great speed. It was, it was a very unreal scene. That's surreal. Well, this is an absolutely captivating account of those 
five minutes of flight, uh, the subsequent NTSB investigation, the issues that the pilots faced at that time, and the discussion about the Canadian geese, along with other bird strikes, which are amazingly common in the New York area and other places in the United States. So anybody interested in books about aviation, but the real focus of the book, at least the latter half of it, was about the fly-by-wire technology that controls the Airbus aircraft and how that contributed to the survival of the passengers and the crew. And I think it's really worthwhile reading. I particularly like the literally called the part three of the book was an absolutely gripping account of the last few minutes of the flight and the rescue by the boats, which you saw in real life, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it was, it was captivating. And unfortunately back then we, you know, we all had cell phones with, with cameras, but they were so tiny that you couldn't really pick it up. It was, you know, right in the middle of the river, I don't know, probably within 500 feet of us, but you know, we watched it very slowly float down the river and it's the most helpless feeling when you see something like that happen, you know, there's nothing you can do. Uh, and we were so relieved to see the boats pull up that we figured there's gotta be some good story here. And it wasn't until we saw it on TV, we understood, you know, how quite what a miracle it was that nobody perished in that accident. Yeah, and a few of the people who tried to swim to shore realized very quickly that the river was just way too cold and, uh, they had to go back to the plane in order not to drown and, and freeze to death. So that's an uplifting thought. Anyway, uh, so let's get started with our show. I have three topics that we're going to talk about today that we discussed earlier. And the first one we'll get started with covers a little bit about security frameworks. And I'll start off with a quick story that happened to me today. I got a voicemail from a doctor's office for a relative of mine and I needed to call them back. So I picked up the phone, called them back and I was greeted with the question of, are you a patient or someone calling for a patient? And I you know, said I was calling for a patient and they immediately went through a security quiz of the patient's address, their phone number, their date of birth, their name and so on, even before asking me what was going on. And to be honest with you, I was just calling back to say to the nurse, hey, you know, call me back. I'm available now. You left a message and I had to be interrogated. And it leads to a really terrible user experience. But I have a feeling that they did that for a reason. And I know you worked in the medical IT field for a while. So do you know? Yeah, they were trying to identify you to see if you were one of the entities that was allowed to get health data for this particular person, <clears throat> you know, not unlike making sure you could access a bank account or something, because it's it's the HIPAA regulations, which- It's not the HIPPO regulations. No, it's not the HIPPO, and it's also the HIPAA regulations, H-I-P-A-A, not H-I-P-P-A, which is how a lot of people seem to spell it. Um, it applies to doctors. So doctors really have to follow this. Anybody who processes medical data or personal information for covered entities, which are anybody in the chain of custody information, you know, needs to protect it, can't let it out to the wrong people. 
The interesting thing about HIPAA, though, is that uh, a lot of people think it applies in situations where it doesn't. It actually only applies to doctors and hospitals and insurance companies that process this information or people who warehouse or store it. Or, you know, I ran a company that did, you know, a lot of technology for it. So we were kind of in that chain of custody. We would sign agreements, you know, with all of the next people in the chain and they would sign agreements with the next people and so forth. So you would push the blame down the road. Is it um, similar it, to the things like ADA or PCI? Well, the interesting thing is that people seem to think that HIPAA applies wherever there's medical information, and it only applies where there's doctors. So, you know, if your brother-in-law wants to tell the world that you have psoriasis, there's no HIPAA violation. If your employer wants to ask you questions, um, there's no HIPAA violation, right? That only applies if your doctor gives something out and you haven't given them permission. Plus, also, HIPAA is an opt-out. You can sign a piece of paper that says, hey, you can give my data to anybody. In some of your health applications on your phone, you'll probably, in terms of service, buried deep in there and find an opt-out for HIPAA, which means they said there, you know, we're not responsible. When people talk about health-related information being an issue at work, it's usually the ADA, as you mentioned, um, that is the governing law over a lot of things that happen in the workplace. Um, the most common manifestation of the ADA that people see is that, you know, if you have a disability, your employer has to make a reasonable effort to accommodate you. You have back problems, you need a special chair, or you're in a wheelchair, but there's no, you know, ramp, all kinds of things like this, where the government is going to enforce. It also, there's a lot of protections there onto what you can and can't ask of employees. So when you hear people talk about, well, you can't ask me that, um, they always seem to fall on HIPAA when in reality it's the ADA. Or, I mean, we are in the United States and actually employers have a shocking amount of latitude in what they're allowed to do. Well, my experience with the ADA was that for in when I worked at Apple, my boss had issues pulling open drawers. So Apple went and they set up a set of uh, drawers for her that she could open up with a uh, special type of stick that wouldn't then hurt her wrists. And that was good. And obviously, when we fly in the airlines nowadays, if you happen to still fly on a 747, they put business class up in the upper deck because they can also put a business class in the lower deck. And you have to be able to accommodate folks who are in wheelchairs or have trouble walking on any service that you offer them. So all that stuff, I think, generally has led to really good things. I mean, I even enjoy the sidewalks where you where you can, you know, not have to step off a massive ledge in order to get around. But my question on are the ADA and HIPAA rules similar to each other in terms of how people apply them or are they different? They're different. HIPAA prescribes a bunch of things about healthcare being portable and but the information security aspect of it is it only comes for review after the fact after there's been a breach so when people say they're hipaa certified it's they did it themselves right they're following industry best practices and some practices that later versions of hipaa kind of put out there but there's no like company that comes over and puts a big rubber stamp on it, 
right? Like PCI is like, if you're processing payments, there's an actual, you can point to an actual document and with all checkboxes in it, and you can pay a third party to go check those all off that you follow all of these processes and rules, you know, and regimens and frameworks and get pre-certified. Whereas HIPAA is like, it happens after the fact. Um, and for a very long time, HIPAA didn't really, they're administrated through health and human services and they didn't really fine people that much, but then they really recently beefed up the fines and started, you know, handing down penalties for these things with ADA again, it's kind of like that. There's a bunch of prescriptions in it, but it's a little more employee driven, meaning the employee can bring, you know, suit under the terms of the ADA or make complaints under the terms of the ADA that, you know, an employer is not accommodating them when they've required it. In some ways, they're the same, but, you know, in other ways, they're administrated differently. They're also administrated through different departments of the federal government. Like yeah. I said, HIPAA is HHS, and I believe ADA is Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division. That actually leads us, I think, on into our next topic, which is... Where we have today, there are regulations on disability, as well as really a growing and, and early field and the concepts of privacy. Now, the question is around transparency of information. And we sat in on a panel discussion just a couple of days ago that was run by the UCLA Institute of Technology, Law and Policy, as well as the Lowell Milken Institute for Business Law and Policy. And the panel discussed the connection between transparency and corporate responsibility. We'll put a link in the show notes to the event. Uh, I think we're looking to see if we can find the video of the recording. It was pretty interesting. And I really came around to effectively asking the question of our transparency and privacy opposites, like direct counterpoles, so to speak. Now, the panel members were from the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the Ranking Digital Rights Organization, and the UCL School of, UCLA School of Law. There are three people that I could tell effectively, they were pretty committed to the idea of transparency and advancing corporate social responsibility. And they came around and they pretty much asked the same question around, you know, what does transparency mean? So I, I thought it was a pretty interesting discussion, although it kind of went off into the weeds every once in a while. But what was your take? I thought it was interesting that they kind of each had a little bit of a different view on is privacy the adversary of transparency? Also, they had a little bit different view on where changes would come from. They each kind of defined transparency, it seemed to me, by how it would be enforced, right? So one of them was like, okay, so we're going to enforce transparency by taking the, the UN human rights rules, taking that framework, applying it to corporate governance. And then one of the other individuals was very much about, hey, let's take, let's create a regulatory body, which kind of enforces 
uh, the corporations and the, the particular example in this case was social media to be more transparent on so many different specific kinds of data. And then the other gentleman was in the camp that transparency is the exact opposite of privacy and that the system is kind of rigged in the favor of the corporation and its privacy. Yeah, the one gentleman talked about building a regulatory framework that was a lot more like the way accounting standards are done today. And it, it'd be interesting to kind of think about which, if there is such a thing as mandated transparency by the U.S. government of American corporations, which organization within the United States should be the one to actually apply that type of regulation? Who do you think would work? I, I, I thought the SEC would be a good place to start. There was a there was a rumor a while back that the SEC was that they were floating the idea of requiring there be a cybersecurity expert on every board of every public company. So, and then that would kind of de facto become the way things would have to work. So, I think doing it through somewhere like the SEC has that advantage in that it touches everything that's public. But beyond that, what one of the panelists brought out. Um, when they were talking about, obviously, the, the UN human rights, and that butts right up against impact investing and social change, and you know how do you get companies to do the right thing? He kind of poured cold water all over it, a little bit of a hyperbole, but um, he reminded everyone that in the United States, almost all corporations are registered in the state of Delaware, the ones that are serious. Um, because of the extremely favorable case law in that state. What's further in Delaware is it's actually on the books that as corporate officers, as as, uh, the board of a corporation or the executive management of a corporation registered in Delaware, it is your fiduciary responsibility. Do everything you can to increase the profits that your shareholders see. Right, that's actually your legal obligation in the state of Delaware. Um, and so he said, literally, if you're going to go take a pile of money and spend it on some kind of, you know, social project, and it all gets wasted without there being any profit at the end, you're technically breaking the law in the state where you've incorporated your company. So, if, what and, if you're Elon Musk and you just want to do say stupid stuff on Twitter? Yeah, you get sued constantly like Elon does. He just got, for the tweet two days ago, he just got sued for $160 million. I think that the case got posted yesterday or today. I mean, there's got to be like 100 cases against him. He doesn't care, obviously. Um, but, you know, his board in the past, you've heard, you know, probably seen the news, has started to care about some of the things he said. Because if he acts in a way that is contrary to the wishes of the shareholders, then you're in trouble. Although. of the time, it's, I mean, while there may be lawsuits, usually it just means the executive team or the CEO is walked out. Um, And also usually very quietly, unless there's been gross misconduct, you know, they're just, quote, moving on to their next, you know, challenge or taking some time to reflect on their career or write a book or something. That's interesting. Well, I guess it's different for other states, right? Because Delaware's law is far more favorable to the corporations, right? Taxation and the case law is very, very um, corporate-centered. 
Uh, so when you get sued, you have to be sued under the laws of the state that you're originally incorporated in. Although you also have to kind of register in every state you do business in when you do business all around the country. But yeah, so they, they brought up the point of that there is a certain very influential chief executive of the United States right now who happens to be from Delaware. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how much that had to do with the way things were, but I'm looking at right now at a couple of startups. I mean, um, we're in the, the, the pre-organization stage and it's like, okay, so when do we call Delaware up and, you know, file our papers? Um, but it buys you, it also makes uh, your company very portable. So if you're somebody who's into startups and um, you know, who's into companies that might take on a lot of investment or change hands and things, it's an extremely portable, changeable place to register your company. Uh, but again, going back to the major point, it was very interesting to hear that, you know, the way the system is set up, there's that profit incentive. And that's why I like the SEC as kind of the enforcement arm saying that as part of the financial disclosures that you're supposed to make and all the other disclosures that you're supposed to make and all the structures you're supposed to have, the transparency in some form would be part of this so that there would be kind of a direct line to the shareholders. I mean, because, you know, the shareholders could all be about social impact and your mission as the CEO or as the board might be not to make a profit, but to make an impact, right? Then you're not actually going against the wishes of the shareholder, right? Yeah. Um, but in most cases, the default state of business in the U.S. is it's all about the shareholders. And I've talked in the past about how, you know, executive management has kind of a different brain. And I think that's a big part of it is that yeah. your directive is what the board wants and what the board wants 98% of the time is more profits. Yeah. And I remember that reminds me of having watched wall street. And I recently was reminded that, Oh, that was actually an Oliver stone movie. And <laughs> I don't know. That's, um, I, I, I wonder if, uh, He's going to make some movies that are more related to the more modern times of uh, what's going on with Facebook and, and other social media. Uh, maybe he is, maybe he will not. But they did actually, during this talk, talk about Facebook. And that leads us nicely into our last point of discussion or maybe more warning, uh, which is that people have to stop answering Facebook polls and questions. These are not polls that are meant to entertain, although that might be one of the curious side effects, but they're meant to steal information and collect data. So you have to stop answering these things. Yeah, and the key is just think about what they're asking you. And you start to realize that all these questions are the same questions that your bank wants you to answer to verify your identity. Like, where did you meet your husband or wife? Or what was your pet's first, you know, your first pet's name? I saw my neighbor answer the following one. If you had to marry your significant other at a place where, and I'm not changing this, y'all met, where would y'all be getting married at? And that is perhaps a future security question, but <laughs> it's one of them. And then I had... I kid you not, eight of my friends answered a poll that, you know, it sounded really friendly. It was 
name a random line for a movie that fans of it instantly know. And I think that that might just be data gathering, but what it means is that you know this movie really well, and you might even think about using information from that movie on some future security question or password or something like that. I've seen people straight up ask, what are your favorite movies? Well, I've done it in certain circumstances. Not, I've never answered the, what's your favorite movie, but I haven't sometimes answered something along the lines of like, what movies might be appropriate for X thing. And I've never possibly used that word in any, you know, those, those words or those movies or anything from those movies in any kind of password or so I've ever done, but it, they're really tempting to answer. Yeah. And a lot of them, I mean, some of them may be harmless, but yeah, there seem, they seem to really follow that, you know, personal security question kind of angle. So you're not getting a lot out of it. Now I saw one friend who literally answered the, the car you passed your driver's test in was a X. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a fun one to find because your actual identity is there on Facebook. I see a lot of them on public groups, which is actually the best place to get them because your answer is public. Or, you know, now you've, you know, doomed yourself to retargeting. There was a joke that somebody uh, wanted a particular thing for Christmas. So they were yelling it by the other person's phone so that, you know, the next time the person turned on their phone, Facebook would constantly retarget them with ads for whatever it is that that person wanted. Oh, God. So I, I wonder so. if that works. It should, because I, you know, I now routinely catch retargeting for stuff I've said out loud, but have never actually searched for. I mean, it is a fact that everything is listening to you. I think that is a really interesting topic for next time. We will yeah. go ahead and produce a podcast next week, even though it's Thanksgiving. We'll release it sometime during the week. So stay tuned for that. But we will do a podcast on whether or not it's a good idea to do private work on company computers. Do we want to spoil the ending? Sure, you shouldn't. But there's so much more to it than that. All right. We're going to give you our insight into that next time. And with that, we'll close out the show. Once again, you can send us your tweets at Podcast or email us talk at sandune.org. Good night. Good night.